Corinthians 13. It's page 959. If you're using the Bible, it's provided. Also invite you to turn to Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, just put a piece of paper or something in chapter 2. We're going to get there as well. The primacy of love. We saw last week in verses 1 to 3 of 1 Corinthians 13 that without love, our service to Christ and to others is nothing. And you know, in a, in a world that, that where love is so badly defined, in, in a culture where love is so misconstrued, it's easy for us as Christians to want to go to the other extreme to minimize or devalue love. In both cases, whether you're looking at love through the wrong cultural lens or if you're looking at love through an improper Christian, somehow distorted lens, in either case, we need to go back to Scripture to understand what true biblical love is. Have a little uh, a little uh, visual for you on the screen. The from a cultural viewpoint of love, and and again, I'm not speaking. I'm speaking very broadly. I'm not speaking uh, about all of the nuances, but speaking broadly, a cultural viewpoint of love deals with the inward first and then the, the horizontal, the outward. So in other words, in much of culture, the, the focus, the thought is, if I can just love myself, then I can love others. And that's one of the, the difficulties with showing love to others is because we are seeking to somehow have this vague notion of a love for self. And this model, what happens is this model of thinking winds up leaving self as the giver and the definer of what love is. Do I have enough love for self? What does love look like? And will I give it out to someone else? And, and I'm defining what that love looks like that I'm giving out to someone else. Broadly speaking, that's a cultural viewpoint of love. And we see it all around us in society. But then if we look at a biblical viewpoint of love, we look at the same two individuals. A biblical viewpoint of love is first defined by a vertical relationship. God's love poured out and lavished on me. And the Bible talks about that we come to know what love is. Because of God's great love for us, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave Himself as the satisfaction for our sins. There's this love that we experience from God the Father, and because the Christian life is a relationship, 
that love, when we realize God's great love for us that has been just poured out on us through Christ, that love begins to be reflected back to Him. We walk with our Lord in relationship. And then out of that vertical relationship comes the horizontal. That then we are able to love others even if they are unlovely, not because it is our love sourced from self, but because it is an overflow of that vertical relationship. You see, this model leaves God as the giver and the definer of love. God is the one who has given love upon us. God is the one who is working in our hearts to be able to love others. And therefore, God is the one that defines what love looks like, not ourselves. You see, so so many times, as one person once said, we are seeking to resolve horizontal problems with horizontal solutions, as opposed to looking at horizontal problems with a vertical solution. Well, as we look at that diagram and and we just are reminded of 1 Corinthians 13 and the emphasis on Christian love that we see here, we are reminded in the first three verses what we looked at that Paul first gives us in verses 1 to 3 the importance of love. That love is greater than even the greatest spiritual gifts and and he he exaggerates that even if we could know all mysteries know everything about God if we could have faith to to literally remove a mountain without love this is nothing so with such an emphasis that Paul places on love with such a an importance that Paul places on love We're going to look this morning at verses 4 to 7 because if love is this important, then we have to be able to define love. And Paul does just that in verses 4 to 7. Now, many people, incidentally enough, many people, if we are looking at love and what is true love, if we are looking at it through a cultural perspective many people would say well Paul you yourself are not showing love because remember as we have studied the book of first Corinthians he has addressed sinful issues head-on in first Corinthians he hasn't held back any punches he said he has said you are wrong In so many areas, very definitively, many people could accuse Paul himself as being unloving. Do you you realize that? Isn't it easy in Christian circles uh, to sometimes have to do the right thing and to do it in love, but you can still be accused of not being loving because you are having to do the difficult thing? You all, if you're a parent, as we talked about last week, you know what that feels like as a parent. That sometimes you just can't be your child's best friend. So, we need to see 
the importance of defining love so that we do not go so far as to develop a cultural viewpoint of love that love is just anybody does anything, truth is just what you say is truth, and what is done in the name of tolerance is actually a self-condemning and others-condemning action. Because the Bible does give us truth. So this morning we're going to look at aspect number two in our text regarding Christian love. Love's description. And once again, we're coming back to our key principle we've looked at in this series. We must cling to what truly matters. And in 1 Corinthians, getting back to the basics of the Christian life is this simple principle to talk about, but difficult to live out to realize that as followers of Jesus, we are called to love like Jesus. So let's pray, and we're going to jump right in to see love's description in verses 4 to 7. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you have called us to be a loving people. And God, the only way that we can be a loving people is to have your love flow through us. Lord, we each have bad days. We have uh, our own difficulties that we are working through. Lord, we have doubts. Lord, we doubt many times your goodness, your love. So Lord, we are totally at your mercy. Father, we, we have to cling as Christians to the reality that love has been given to us in, in our worst state while we were lost in our sin. That you took the initiative in love. Father, we could never measure up to your love. But you have sovereignly and graciously given it to us. So Lord, I pray that our hearts would be filled with the reality of your love. Lord, even in those moments that we do not feel loved, to realize that, our, that we are secure in those very moments in the love that surpasses even our understanding, our feelings. And Father, would we be a people that reflect to each other true love. Lord, help us as we seek to define biblical love. Lord, that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts, open our minds. Lord, without you, we can do nothing. Lord, give us the strength and the grace to hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, then give us the strength to respond the way that you call us. In Jesus' name, amen. Love's description. Let's just really quickly uh, read verses 4 to 7. Follow along as I read. Here's love's description. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I want to just, as we read this passage as a whole, just note two points. First of all, number one, these aren't on the screen, but just two introductory points with these verses. We have to remember that love is really an action verb, not just a description. Did you know in verses 4 to 7, these sound like adjectives. Love is patient. Love is kind. And it's just describing love. Did you know in the Greek that these are actually verbs? You could, you could, you could read this with the sense of love is exercising patience. Love is exercising kindness. Love is not exercising envy or boast. There are, there are literally 15 verbs in verses 4 to 7 that describe love. Kind of reminds us that we are to show love not simply through our thoughts or our intentions, but through our actions, right? I don't know how many times I've, you know, busyness in life and, and uh, you know, you and your spouse, you become two ships passing in the night and you're not, you're not, you're not uh, proactively uh, keeping time together and, you know, it can be, you know, I haven't heard, we haven't talked in a while, you haven't even told me you love me in a while and, and I know my response can easily be, oh yeah, you know, I've, I've actually thought it though several times. Well, what good does that do, Right? Love is an action. It is both, yes, we can't negate the emotions. Love is a feeling, but, but, but love is so much more than a feeling. Love is an action. That's reminder number one. Reminder number two, and we're going to talk about this a little bit today, but I don't know about you, but I falter, I shudder under the weight of these verses. Because my goodness, look at this list. Don't we all falter under the weight of these verses? But we're going to look at how we need to properly see these verses. Well, as we describe and look at love's description in verses 4 to 7, I'm kind of breaking these characteristics up into three categories. The first category we're going to look at is in verses 4 and 5. It's the demeanor of biblical love. You could almost say the temperament of biblical love. How is love described in its temperament? That's verses 4 to 5. And then in verse 6, we're looking at the purity of biblical love. What does love seek for? What does love desire and then in verses, verse 7, we're going to look at some characteristics describing the persistence of biblical love. How far, how much does love persist? Should it persist? So I want to start by looking at the demeanor of biblical love. And what we're going to do is we're just going to go through these characteristics and we're going to see 
what God's word has for us. The first characteristic is love is patient. And in fact, the first two characteristics really go hand in hand, don't they? Love is patient, love is kind. How many of you, you know, you get so many good illustrations um, just being a, a, a parent. And, uh, you know, I try, as my kids get older, I try to promise them, you know, I'm not going to embarrass them. But isn't it easy as a parent to claim to be patient and yet not be kind? You know, I think of, I think of uh, at this stage, you know, Sammy, he's now, he's going to be three, November 15th. Uh, we're still working on the potty training. Man, it's a slow process. We're thinking if we can just get out of diapers this one last time, we're done. But it's, it's not coming. I mean, it, it's slowly getting there. But, you know, Sammy's walking around and he's, he's uh, you know, his, he, he's taken leaps both physically and mentally. In fact, Wednesday night, um, he saw me watching him through the, the, the back window um, during game time for Puggles, and uh, I kind of waved at him, and I noticed he didn't, like, get excited. He kind of had his head down, and, and on, the van tr- on, the, on, the, on our trip home, uh, his, his vocabulary and logic is astounding us. I said, Sammy, Dad, did you see Daddy watching you during game time? And he says, I was so embarrassed. <laughs> You know, so that gave us all a good laugh. But, you know, just, just an example of, of, uh, of uh, you know, patience and kindness. You know, we'll go up the stairs. You know, maybe he needs to go. It's bedtime or, or we've got to change his diapers, room's upstairs. And, and I kind of let him go up the stairs himself, and I'm waiting at the top. And, you know, I'm being quote-unquote patient, right, as he kind of, plops up the stairs on all fours, and, and uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of an unkind patience until it's like, come on, Sammy, you coming? Come on. You know, you could say, well, you're being such a patient dad, but there's no kindness there. Love is patient and kind. These two things go together. Let's first look at patience. It's interesting, I think, that, that Paul starts off with this pair, patient and kindness, because we see throughout Scripture, this is, these are two characteristics of God. Romans 2 and verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance? And there's that word. It should be on the overhead for you. Patience not knowing that God's kindness, well, there's the other word, is meant to lead you to repentance. Can I ask you, how many of you, in your Christian life, you try to conjure up repentance out of a sense of just pure guilt? You try to conjure up, I'm going to do better as a Christian, out of this sense of, I better toe the line, or else... God's going to just be frowning upon me. Did you know that's totally unbiblical? What is it that leads people to repentance? Repentance isn't just a repentance to be saved. Repentance, Martin Luther said, repentance and faith are to be practiced continually as a Christian. What leads us to repentance is the patience the kindness 
the forbearance of God. How could God be this loving to me and I reject him? Didn't we kind of hear that in Devin's testimony in baptism? Another verse, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, we see the character of God. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Man, don't you think so many times, God, you are such a slow God. Why is my life filled with waiting? Well, aren't we glad in 2 Peter 3, 9 that God is slow in our understanding. It says, He is not slow as some count slowness. No, He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish and that all should reach repentance. Now, theologically, what 2 Peter 3.9 is saying is that God is not going to lose a single person. He, uh, none of His elect are going to somehow slip through God knows each and every person that he has called to salvation and he is not going to come again until each and every one of those individuals that he has, he has brought to himself come to receive Christ in real lifetime. But in our Christian life, can't we by application see here that what we so often say is God's slowness is God's patience toward us? That God knows exactly what we can handle, when we can handle it, when our faith is at the right spot for Him to bring things into our life. Whether those things are good in our understanding or bad, we know all things work together for good. It is actually a grace, it is an act of love that God is so patient with us. In fact, it's not on the overhead, but one of the ways Israel manifested its idolatry is that they would not wait on God. In fact, Isaiah 30, Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. So you would think that God says, so I'm done with you. We you know what it says later in that passage in verse 18? Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait for him. That is the patience of God. Waiting in love when we don't deserve it. You see, our, and we'll talk about this more as we move along, our patience to others, it is only a byproduct of God's patience to us. Until we realize the great patience, that, the great patient attitude that God has to us, how do we expect to give that to others? But love is also kind. And, and again, Romans 2 and verse 4, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is a kind God. 
If you have a marker in Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to flip over Chapter 2 is just a, such a wonderful passage for believers to see what God has done in our lives. But look on with me at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And, raise, and He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is our spiritual standing. Spiritually, we are already in the heavenlies. We're still here on earth. There's an already not yet aspect here. One day, we will forever be with God in the heavenlies. But spiritually, that's where our standing is. Why has God done all of this? Verse 7 so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace, there's that word again, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This verse is literally saying that for all of eternity, we are trophies of the riches of the grace that God has given us in His kindness. The, uh, Jesus tells us that if we look at Him, because He is one with the Father, we are seeing who God is. Well, we see all throughout Jesus' life and ministry His compassion and His kindness. In fact, Matthew 9 and verse 36 says, when the crowds when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. All throughout the Bible, we see God's compassionate kindness. Can I ask you a question this morning? If you're a Christian here, you know God loves you, right? You, you, you know that God sent his son. You, you've turned to Jesus in faith. But can I ask you as a Christian here, even though you know God loves you, first of all, maybe it's a head knowledge and it hasn't quite gripped the heart yet. But did you also know that God doesn't just love you, He likes you? I mean, I can say, you know what, I love you. But I don't like, really like hanging around you. You know, you can have the crazy uncle uh, that comes for Thanksgiving dinners. You love him because he's in the family, but man, you don't like him. Roll your eyes or her. Did you know that God doesn't just love you? He likes you? You are a delight to him? Is that kind of hard to think about? H have our minds been so trained uh, to, to gauge God's love by what we see around us and sometimes what we are even listening to inside of us that we fail to realize He enjoys us, He takes delight in us. This is the type of love we're reading about in 1 Corinthians 14. And it's no coincidence that these first two characteristics are displayed 
uh, and described of God throughout Scripture. But thirdly, what is love's demeanor? What is its temperament? We get now to some negative characteristics that love is not. And it says love does not envy. Love does not envy. In other words, love is not earnestly desiring that which it does not have. The Corinthian church were struggling with this very thing of envy. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, I fed you with milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for it. Why were they not ready? It says you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? That word jealousy is the same word here, envy. So many times our hearts are filled with envy that it clouds out both God's love for us and it clouds out that love for others. It also says love does not boast. That word boast has the idea of excessive praise. To heap praise on oneself. You all know someone that, uh, individuals, right? That there, there's no shortage of boasting. There's no shortage of, of, of enjoyment of talking about self. Love is not characterized as boasting. In fact, Gordon D. Fee, a, a theologian and commentator, he actually died this past week, um, uh, he, he said this, it is not possible to boast and love at the same time. The one action wants others to think highly of oneself, whether deserving or not. The other cares for none of that, but only the good of the community as the whole. We are to care for the good of the community as the whole, as a part of Christ's church. Love does not, does not boast, and then it says, similarly to boasting, it is not arrogant. That word arrogant, we see it several times in the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, in the New Testament, this word arrogant, it can also be translated puffed up. In the New Testament, there are seven occurrences of this word, of this verb. It is not arrogant. It is not exercising arrogance. Seven times it is listed in the New Testament. Six of those are in, are in the book of 1 Corinthians. That's how much of a problem this was in the church of Corinth. Doesn't Paul say, you know, dealing with issues of meat, you are puffed up in what you claim to be your knowledge of truth. We don't have time to turn there for sake of time, but you can write down this, this arrogance is found in Corinth, and there's even a small group question about this. It's found in chapter 4 and verse 6. Chapter 4 and verse 18 and verse 19. Chapter 5 and verse 2. Chapter 8, verse 1. Love is not stuck on self. If, if Jesus has defined for us what love looks like, Jesus' love was totally selfless. In fact, Jesus was willing to put aside His glories to come in the form of a man. 
The text also says love is not rude in verse 5. The word rude, it has the idea of acting indecently or to act shamefully. It's not necessarily rude in the sense that we often gauge rudeness like, boy, somebody was really short with me. They were kind of just quick with me. That was rude. Or, hey, don't burp at the dinner table. That's rude. It's talking about behaving, and maybe you could put burping at the table under this, but behaving disgracefully or contrary to what is natural, what is good, what is right. The only other time this word rude is used is earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, verse 36, about marriage and two individuals that were thinking of getting married and Paul says under the current situation, I would advise not to, but he says if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, they should marry. That behaving properly is the same word that we read of rude it's so easy to behave improperly to others around us is it not but also love does not insist on its own way or love doesn't seek its own way it's the idea of selfishness or being self-seeking in fact paul says in first corinthians 10 24 let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor You see, an unbiblical love has self at the center. It's a circle of one. Listen, when we are thinking about ourselves, when we have forgotten God's love that has just been poured out on us in Christ, and we are not consciously making ourselves aware of that, consistent time in His Word, seeking Him, in a relationship, in prayer, in spiritual disciplines, in community and fellowship with one another, in connection to his body, we by default go the way of self. I mean, how many times just this week, in the seven days, that, the seven mornings that are represented this week, how many of them would you say you woke up And what is it that flooded your mind and dictated your day? Was it your situations, your agendas for the day, your to-do lists, your trials, your health issues, your this, your that? And it's not that any of those things aren't important, but you know what Satan does to us? He takes a kernel of truth, And he blows it up so that that is the only thing that we see. Unless, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, we are actively seeking the Spirit's help to tear down those strongholds in our minds that have risen up in replacement of the person of Christ. The Christian life is described as a seeking. But if we start to seek our own way 
we have now entered into a distorted perspective of faith and love. We are to be seeking Christ. Jesus says, you you shall seek and you shall find. It is not that we just somehow magically grow in our faith. We don't just somehow magically find victory in our Christian lives. It is as we are seeking the face of Christ. But so many times that seeking is replaced by self. The description, love's demeanor, love's attitude, love's temperament, continues by saying that love is not irritable. Irritable has the idea, the meaning of being provoked or aroused to anger. Ouch, this one's a a convicting one for many of us, right? In fact, I really like how um, one commentator describes this word irritable. And this is even a more convicting way to put it. I know in my life and probably in many of yours, being irritable is defined by a minor or even just a perceived offense that triggers an explosive temper. You ever had that? Biblical love is not irritable. Man, people don't have to feel like they have to walk around eggshells around you because at any possible moment, the the atomic bomb may go off. You know, as, as couples in marriage, isn't it easy to have your own version of the Cold War? Better, better, better act in silence or avoid each other because who knows when the missiles are going to strike. How we need to reorient our perspectives of what love is. But then this last characteristic under this heading of the demeanor of biblical love, the temperament, the attitude of love, is that love is not resentful. And man, I find this description, this word so interesting because it is so easy for us to get resentful, isn't it? Harboring some bitterness, start to kind of, I'm not going to overreact, but I'm going to ponder this in my heart just like Mary pondered all these things <laughs> that in the Christmas story. This idea of being resentful is the, uh, it, it has the meaning of keeping an account of wrongdoings. In fact, one source describes it as to keep a mental record of events for the sake of some future action. Man, just the right time. I'm going to give it to them. Or I'm going to not. Boy, you know what? The next time they ask me to do something, they act like that. Boy, they're going to see me not do. I'm not, forget me ever doing anything for that person. That, that's what this is talking about. It's to add up in one's mind, to make a list in one's heart of grievances. You want to know where else this word is used in the Bible? Resentful or keeping an account? 
It's, good, it's on the screen for you, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19. It's used in the opposite sense here. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You want to know the reason, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you're here in this room, that you worship Jesus, that you live for Jesus? Do you want to know why? It is not because of yourself. It is because of what God has done for you through Jesus and the fact that God did not count your trespasses against you. You did not pay the judgment for those trespasses. Jesus did. This word is used 11 times in Romans 4. We're not going to go to Romans 4. But in the usage of this word, reckoning, counting, it's used in the context that God has not counted our sins against us, but our faith has been accounted to us as righteousness. So when we are holding grudges and being resentful, we are flying in the face of what God has done for us. That He has not. He has withheld reckoning because Jesus took it for us. That's love's demeanor. But I want to quickly look at two final aspects of love and our time is almost out. And I want to wrap this together so we see it in a full picture. The second characteristic kind of heading for what love is, how is love defined, is the purity in biblical love. And I think this is really important, especially from a cultural perspective, because we as Christians can get accused of being unloving in society because we call sin, sin. Look at verse 6. Love, it, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. That is so important. Listen, the, the, the parent that's that, that their child says, well, you know what? You know, I, I'm gay, I'm transgender, I'm all, uh, whatever it is. And, and the parent says, that's okay, honey. You be you. That's great. That's not biblical. That is not rejoicing in, with truth. That is rejoicing or celebrating wrongdoing. When we fail to, to take a stand for what's right in, in biblical love, not being ugly, when we fail to have what John talks about in 1 John, both truth and love, they're together. They, they are not contradictory. We are, we are not having biblical love when we fail to do this. You see, love rejoices when the truth, when justice is done, not wickedness or injustice, does not rejoice at wrongdoing. The idea of injustices but it rejoices alongside or with the truth. Like what one person says, they succinctly state it well, Andy Nacelli, he says, love hates what God hates, and love loves 
what God loves. That's how you can take verse 6. Love hates what God hates. Love loves what God loves. When we say hate, we're not talking about acting ugly or hating the person. We are talking about the injustice, the wrongdoing. Love, biblical love is pure. Biblical love is not mixed with sin. And then thirdly, the third category for biblical love is that biblical love is persistent. I want us to take all of verse 7 together as we come to this final verse. Love, here's four things that shows the persistence. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Wow. There you have it. It bears, it believes, it hopes, it endures. Now the reason I have all four of these things together is because Paul meant for these things to be seen together. When you have a picture frame, and a, and a picture in the, in the frame, what, is, what, what, what are your eyes meant to be drawn to? It's meant to be drawn in the middle, right? To the beautiful picture. And even if it's a decorative frame, the decorative frame, you may say, like, let's say you have a family picture in your home and, and you bought, you invested in like a really pretty frame and, and it's really big and you have your family there. How would you feel if somebody came up, to, came, visited your house, you had them for dinner or you're hosting small group that night and they come up to the wall, they kind of stare at the picture for a while and look at it and they say, man, that's a pretty frame, and then they sit down. How would you feel? Now, of course, you probably wouldn't be super offended or hurt, but you would probably, in the, at least in the back of your mind, think, well, that's a weird, weird answer. How about, man, I really like that picture of your family. That is such a good picture. And, and where did you get that frame? That's a really neat frame. But the frame simply holds the picture, there's a literary feature in the Bible that, that many authors of the Bible use. It's called a chiasm. Uh, you don't need to remember that word, but just so you know, we have a chiasm here. And what a chiasm does is it places on, as bookends two similar things to highlight the focus of what's in the middle, kind of like a nice picture frame. Now notice the first thing, love bears all things, and love endures all things, those are almost synonymous, aren't they? Because it is saying true biblical love, it's enduring. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 12, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Boy, you talk about love. True love, it, it bears up for others. It bears up for the cause of Christ, even when things are difficult. And very similarly, love endures all things. In fact, the same words used of Jesus in Hebrews 12 too, Jesus endured the cross. Both of these bookend statements are talking about the persistence, the perseverance in love. Love just doesn't say, I give up. That's it. I'm not going to love anymore. 
You may have to change your actions with certain individuals, but that doesn't mean you change your heart, right? But what is the fuel for the persistence of biblical love? It's those two middle things that Paul is highlighting. That love believes all things and hopes all things. When the Bible talks about love believing all things, it's not talking about a naive blindness to problems or difficulty. It's not talking about, hey, I I know that I just gave you $20 because you said it was for this, and you go out and you use it in a bad way, but hey, let me keep shelling out the money. No, that's not love believes all things. Well, I I know he's going to do the right thing next time. That's not what this is talking about. It's not a naive blindness. But what it is talking about is that it is a belief, a trust, as as one individual put it, in the one who calls us to love others. And we live out that love for others as a reflection of our trust, our belief in God. I am willing to be wronged. I am willing to to not be in the humdrum of negativity because my belief and my hope, that next word, it is sourced in God, not any situation or person. That is what is allowing me to persist in biblical love. Love hopes all things similarly. It's not just, well... I'm going to simply find the silver lining in this situation. I'm going to simply find the silver lining in this difficult relationship that God has allowed me to be in. Yes, we need to to find silver lining in things, but the foundation of what we're talking about is a hope in God Himself. That He is working even this out for my eternal good. That he is showing himself and desires to show himself strong where we are weak. That is love's persistence. Isn't verse 7, by the way, a breath of fresh air after reading all of these negative traits in verse 5 and 6? Isn't it a breath of fresh air when you're around someone that really has a love for Jesus and others? And it's just like they are just so refreshing to be around. Is that you? Well, as we begin to close, I want to close with two final thoughts. To show you your your need for Jesus this morning. I want to give you, and this is not original with me, uh, it's in, in, uh, um, I came across it in, one of Francis Chan's books, Crazy Love, I believe it was, years ago. I want to give you a love test. Now, this isn't the test that maybe, I haven't seen any too recently, but you used to go to like um, certain places and like maybe an arcade or something, and you could put your finger at these sensors, and then it's supposed to tell you how good of a, uh, of a, of a, of a lover you are, right? <laughs> any, of, any of you ever seen those? Two people. I wasn't at a bad place when I saw that. <laughs> this is like a public place, okay? 
<laughs> but for lack of a better term, this is kind of a love to, uh, gauging yourself, how am I showing love in my life? You're not going to put your finger at a little fake pretend sensor. You're going to put your finger, so to speak, in the truth of God's word. This is also in your small group you'll be discussing this. But what the love test is, is wherever you see the word love in verses 4 to 7, or wherever you see kind of the pronoun it that stands for love, put your name there, and, and, and how true is it? So I'll do it for myself, and then you can do it. Uh, if, if you're married, you can, you can do this test with, uh, with your spouse and have your spouse read your name and see if they laugh or not. No, it's uh, or a friend or whatever. But here, I'll, I'll do it. For, I'll, I'll put my name. Adam is patient and kind. I hope I don't hear anything from the, my, my left corner. Adam does not envy or boast. Adam is not arrogant or rude. Adam does not insist on its own way. Adam is not irritable or resentful. Adam does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Adam bears all things. Adam believes all things. Adam hopes all things. Adam endures all things. Ouch. That is a test that I do not pass. I'd venture to say that probably you don't either more often than not. But I think it's important for us, not in like a morbid introspective way to just tear us down, but I think it's important for us to see how far we fall short. Because it's not until we see how far we fall short do we realize the great hope and assurance that we have. Because we've done a lot of describing of love, but you know who does pass this love test? You know who is ultimately described in verses 4 to 7? You see, love is described here as a person, and that's Jesus Christ. You put Jesus' name in there, and it is checkmark each and every time in the lives of other people, and probably even more shocking to you in your own life. In fact, in, in Jesus' earthly ministry, the, uh, the one and the only time that he gives a self-description of himself is Matthew chapter 11. In verses 28 to 30, here's what he tells the people. They're weary trying to live up to the standards and laws of the Pharisees. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Does that describe you this morning? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You see, knowing the, the, the God of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, it is having to work through all of the misconceptions and coming to God's word to see him for who he is. And, and the Holy Spirit does that work as we are seeking him. 
learn from me. And here's the one self-description of Jesus in the New Testament. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's how Jesus describes himself. The, the king of the universe, the one, it says, by whom, uh, he, uh, by whom all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by, through him and for him, and all things are held together through him. It's Colossians 1. The king of the universe describes his demeanor that he is gentle and lowly in heart. He doesn't have a come across that is proud, that is intimidating for people to come. And didn't we see that in the, in the Gospels? It was the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes that found the most acceptance with Christ. And as Jesus is now seated in the heavenlies, his character, his temperament has not changed. Thomas Goodwin, who wrote The Heart of Christ, he says this, Christ is love covered over with flesh. That's Christ. And Christ is today at the right hand of God, and guess what? He did not lose being 100% man and 100% God. He is glorified humanity and glorified deity in heaven today. He is still gentle and humble, lowly in heart. And he invites you to come to him because he is the description of verses 4 to 7. Will you come to him or will you seek your own way? 